Welcome to a bonus episode of Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. In this episode, we'll be airing Dr. Creasy's Introduction to the Psalms, part of our latest project, The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience, available now at LogosBibleStudy.com slash psalms. It includes an e-book of all 150 psalms, Dr. Creasy's audio commentary to all 150 psalms, written analysis of each psalm, and a 50% discount code for our course, The Story of King David, in the Logos Online Classroom. And this is all for under $50. Get yours at Logos Bible Study Psalms. Now, here's Dr. Creasy with an introduction to the Psalms. Well, welcome everyone. We're at the very beginning of our study through the book of Psalms. And I have to say, at the very start, that of all the books in the Bible, the book of Psalms is, for me, the most difficult book to teach in many ways. First of all, there are 150 Psalms. 150 poems originally written as songs to be accompanied by music. They were to be used in worship. The Psalms have been the prayer book of Israel for 3,000 years and the prayer book of the church for 2,000 years. Each one of those 150 Psalms is a gem in and of itself. So working through systematically Psalms 1 through 150 is a real challenge because they're complex poems, they are world-class poems, and they are fraught with meaning. If you want to grow closer to God, the single most important thing you can do is become intimate with the Psalms. The Psalms express every possible response that we can have to God, from profound love and deep devotion to despair and icy anger and everything in between. Our relationship with God is like a relationship with any other person. It's linear across our lives. It has high points, mountaintop experiences. It has low points, really dreadful, awful times. And it has a whole lot of flat places where it feels like nothing's happening at all. Every relationship is like that, including our relationship with God. And the Psalms capture all of it in all of its nuances. So the Psalms together are perhaps the most important book in the Bible in understanding our relationship with God from an internal perspective. The book of Psalms is a big challenge for all of us, but we're up to it. And we're going to move along through those psalms over the next many weeks. It will take us some time to work through them. The psalms were written over a period of about a thousand years. If we turn over to Psalm 90, we read Psalm 90, which begins book four of the book of Psalms. And I'll explain that a little bit later. Psalm 90 carries an epigram with it. That is, a tag note telling us about the psalm. And it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. Moses leads Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus in 1446 B.C. So this psalm, if indeed we attribute it to Moses, would date from about 1500 B.C. On the other hand, 
If you turn over to Psalm 137, we read, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 137 is written sometime during the Babylonian exile, that is, after 586. So our boundaries for the Psalms are Moses on the one hand, about 1500, and the Babylonian captivity on the other, up around 500. So we have a thousand year span in between. The Psalms are written by many different people and collected together. In fact, we're going to go through momentarily the categories of Psalms and their authors. But we have Psalms written by David. We have Psalms written by temple musicians such as Asaph or the sons of Korah. Uh, We have Psalms that were written for particular purposes, for festivals and feasts, for ascending to Jerusalem, for example, the songs of Ascent. We have praise psalms or Hallel psalms which are meant for Passover, to be sung at Passover. So many different uses for the psalms written by many different people over a very long period of time. But collected together they express every possible response that we as human beings can have to God in our relationship with God in a very interior way. So I'd like to title this whole series on the psalms The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience. The experience of our relationship with God in all of its features and facets, in all of its shadows and shades and nuances, in all of its tones and textures and color. The Psalms, 150 of them, might be classified into six categories of Psalms. And let me work through that with you by way of introduction. The first category would be the Davidic Psalms, those Psalms attributed to David. The Davidic Psalms include Psalms 3 through 41, 3 through 41, with the possible exception of Psalm 32. They also include Psalms 51 through 70, with the possible exception of 66 and 67. And they include Psalms 138 through 145. David writes 73 of the 150 Psalms. And many of the Davidic Psalms we can tie to specific experiences in David's life. When David, in the narrative, the story of David, when David, for example, and we'll look at this uh, in our second meeting together, uh, in Psalm 3, Psalm 3 carries an epigram, a tag note, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. You remember the story of David when his son Absalom rebelled against him, raised an army and marched on Jerusalem and David left Jerusalem without firing a shot. He was utterly devastated at the betrayal of his own son. We read that story in 2 Samuel but when David was on the way down from Jerusalem to Jericho, leaving Jerusalem with his son hot on his tail, what was David feeling inside? Well, Psalm 3 takes us into the very heart of David, what he's feeling at this time. So the 73 Psalms attributed to David take us into the heart of David and help us understand who he is and his relationship with God. God said of David, 
David's a man after my own heart. I love David. Why? Well, reading the narrative story of David, we may have some inkling of why God loved David and why David was a man after God's own heart. But if we take these 73 Psalms and examine them in detail and delve into the heart of David, we find that no matter what, good time and bad, David was rooted in God. And one of the things I think God liked about David is his utter brutal honesty. When David felt deep love and devotion for God, he was ecstatic in his expression of that love and devotion. When David was angry with God, he had no problem telling God he was angry. Indeed, at one point, he says, in effect, with friends like you, who needs enemies? Just leave me alone. Well, anyone that you've been in love with, at some point in that relationship, you've felt the very same way. I don't need this anymore. I am done with it. Just leave me alone. And God, David expresses that feeling toward God. And God, rather than being angry with him, God said, I understand, David. I understand. Well, the Davidic Psalms, of the 150 Psalms, now I have to say, they're among my favorites. One of the psalms that we all know, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is a psalm written by David, I think, toward the end of his life. If we were to write an epitaph for David on his tombstone, I think it would come from Psalm 23, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the Davidic psalms, we'll be exploring those uh, not as a set, but they are grouped together, so we'll have a great deal of time with David, and we'll be linking these psalms to events in David's life to provide context for those psalms. The second category of psalms are the psalms of Asaph. Uh, there are 11 psalms that make up this collection, Psalms 73 through 83. Psalm 50 may have been part of the set at one time. Now, Asaph you may recall, was a, Levit a Levitical musician who played a leading role in the music of worship during the time of David. We read about him in 1 Chronicles 15, 17 through 19, and in 16, verses 4 through 5. His descendants carry on the tradition of being temple musicians, and there are a number of psalms that are attributed to Asaph's descendants as well. But Psalms 73 through 83 make up that collection. Typically, in the epigram up top, it will say a psalm of Asaph. So we know that it's in the collection. The third category of psalms are psalms of the sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. And there may have been two such collections, Psalms 42 through 49, with the possible exception of 43, and Psalms 84 through 88, with the possible exception of 86. The Korhites were Levites, uh, and they were descended through Kohath. We read of him in 1 Chronicles 6 at verse 12. He was involved, as was Asaph, in the music of the temple. And these Psalms are typically tagged Psalms of the sons of Korah. The fourth category is songs of ascent, that is, of going up. 
And these psalms include Psalms 120 through 134. 120 through 134. These psalms are energetic psalms. These psalms are psalms of encouragement. If we're to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem back in biblical times, uh, typically we'd be traveling from the north to the south, Galilee to Judah. And as we moved from the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, we would pass from Galilee, from the Sea of Galilee, down to Beit Shan. We would cross the Jordan River at Beit Shan. We would parallel the Jordan down to Jericho, cross back over at Jericho, and then go up the road from Jericho, 900 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level, in about a 17-mile span. That's a pretty significant vertical climb. It's a three-day journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And if I were leading the tour on Passover, we would all gather together. We'd have an orientation, and we would assemble out in the parking lot, and we would head off for our big adventure to Jerusalem. And we would walk. We would walk on day one to Beit Shan and cross over the Jordan River and stay there for the night, day one. Day two, we would follow from Beit Shan south to Jericho. And we would stay at Jericho on the second night. At Jericho, from uh, the Sea of Galilee to Jericho, 700 feet below sea level to 900 feet below sea level. So a slight downward decline. But on day three, we would begin the 17-mile journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem 900 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above. We've got about a 3,500 foot elevation gain in a pretty short time. Now, I've led group tours for a long time. We just got back from eastern Turkey, and in October it will be my 47th tour to Israel. I know what it is to lead groups on a tour. And by day three, after a nice time together walking along, we get to Jericho, we have a nice dinner, we wake up on day three and we start the big climb uphill. That's when people begin to whine and moan and complain, <laughs> right? And uh, I can just see it. We're walking uphill, not too bad at first. The, the road is, it inclines, but not at a particularly severe uh, degree, but as we continue, it gets steeper and steeper, and people are thinking, this is the third day, my feet hurt, are we there yet? I have to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> how much longer? Uh, this is too hard. My, my knees hurt, and all of that would take place on the third day. So what do we do? How about we have a song or two? And on the way up that road to Jerusalem, I would have my little songbook of songs, and that would be the songs of ascent, because we're ascending from Jericho up to Jerusalem, and that would be Psalms 120 through 134. In fact, as we move through those psalms, I'll show you pictures of that journey, and in the psalms themselves, we can recognize stops along the way on the way up to Jerusalem. Oh, look over there. And we can talk about that in the psalm. So they're psalms meant 
for ascent going up to Jerusalem, either from Jericho to Jerusalem or from the coastal plain up. In either case, you're going from sea level or below to 2,500 feet above, and it's a hard climb on the third day. Songs of Ascent, category four. Category number five are the Egyptian praise psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. Hallel in Hebrew means praise. The Egyptian Hallel Psalms include Psalms 113 through 118. 113 through 118 would have been sung during the Passover meal. Uh, In fact, if we turn over in the Gospel according to Matthew, let me get myself there. If we go over to Matthew chapter 20... Six at verse 17. We begin the Passover meal or the Last Supper. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I'm reading Matthew 26, verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, I've already made reservations. Go to the city to a certain man, tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near. My reservation is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Clearly Jesus has made arrangements ahead of time. If you're in Jerusalem during Passover, the normal population of 100,000 increases to about a million. And if you want to have a private dining room for Passover, you better make reservations. And he did. So the disciples did as Jesus directed, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now they were very sad. They began to say to one another, well, not surely not I. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Across this entire Passover meal, we have the food of the Passover meal, the lamb, and we have four cups of wine that are drunk during the Passover. And as this three-hour meal progresses, we sing songs. And those songs are the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118. In fact, at the very end of this section, in Matthew 26, verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that's the final hymn, the final song of the Passover meal. And what psalm would that have been? Psalm 118 is what they would have sung. So these psalms, the Hallel's, Egyptian Hallel Psalms, 113 to 118, take place across the Last Supper, across 
the Passover meal. And as we study these psalms, we'll be looking at them within the context of the Passover meal itself. Category number six are the general Hallel or praise psalms. This collection includes Psalms 113 through 118. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the uh, uh, category six are the general Hallel psalms. Uh, they include Psalms 146 through 150, the end of the book of Psalms. And in these psalms, well, they form a grand crescendo to the entire collection of psalms. These psalms each one increases in intensity until you have, in effect, the entire orchestra and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir all singing in Psalm 150. So these general psalms, general praise psalms, 146 to 150, draw the psalms, uh, the book of psalms, to a conclusion. So the psalms are used for worship on very specific times, like Passover. They're used for encouragement on the ascent to Jerusalem. They're used for general worship at the temple. And they're used to take us into the heart of David and indeed into our own hearts and our own understanding of our relationship with God. All of us have encountered the Psalms at one point or another. And so did I earlier on, of course, you know, Psalm 23, Psalm 100, uh, Psalm 91. These are all things we're familiar with simply from growing up within a Christian environment. But I never really experienced the Psalms until the early 1990s. Uh, in the early 1990s, I had arrived at uh, UCLA uh, as a professor in 1987. I was there as a graduate student. I did my PhD there and then left for a couple of years, and then was recruited back. And uh, so I really began full-time uh, about 1987 uh, as a regular faculty member. And I was teaching, among other things, uh, the course, The English Bible as Literature. So I had to deal with the Psalms in the context of that class. But it wasn't until about 1992 that I was invited by... Uh, Father Christian Carr, who was the, uh, the abbot of Mepkin Abbey, a Trappist monastery in South Carolina, uh, he invited me to come during Advent and teach the Bible to the monks, the Trappist monks at Mepkin Abbey. Well, that was a little intimidating, you know. <laughs> I mean, these are people who have the, have the Bible right at the very center of their lives, and particularly the Psalms. But I, I accepted the invitation, and I went. I spent two weeks, and each night after dinner and before Compline, the final hour of prayer, uh, I would teach the Bible. And it was a, a wonderful experience. There were only 20-some uh, monks there. The average age was about 70. And these are very experienced people in the spiritual life. But it was, a, it was a real joy to teach the Bible to a group of people like that. They were so perceptive uh, on levels that I could never even begin to imagine. And, um, and that was nice. And it went on. I was invited back the following year. And I went back every year for about five years. Then... Uh, uh, Father Christian uh, retired. He turned 80 years old, and that's a mandatory retirement age for the abbot. Uh, a new abbot came on, and of course he brought his own people in to do things. Fair enough, but I certainly enjoyed my time with the monks at Mepkin Abbey during the two weeks of Advent each year. 
When I was there, I, I learned a great deal about that monastic life, a life given to prayer, a life centered in Christ, and a life of prayer. Uh, at the monastery at Mepkin Abbey and most other monasteries, there are five periods of prayer each day. Five periods. Number one is very early in the morning. It used to be referred to as matins, but now it's simply called the office of readings. And depending on the time of year, uh, when I was there, uh, a bell would ring from the chapel and you would wake up at about four o'clock in the morning and make your way off to the chapel. And the monks would file in on either side of the aisle in choir stalls. So you had maybe a dozen monks on the right and a dozen on the left facing each other. And there was a, a table or a, like a, a reading uh, desk in front of each person with a chair. And on the desk was a copy of the Book of Psalms. In fact, the very copy that I'm going to refer to and read from up here. It's called the Abbey Psalter. Uh, you can actually buy this. Uh, it's published by Paulist Press. You can go on Amazon.com, look at the Abbey Psalter, and you can buy a copy just like it. And it was originally written in calligraphy. Uh, and quite beautiful if you take a look. And a copy of this was at each of the, uh, each of the reading tables. I was invited to participate in the choir with the monks. So that hour of prayer, first thing before the sun ever comes up, you know, really in the middle of the night at oh dark 30, uh, the monks come together and they pray the psalms. They pray the psalms in order, 1 through 150. And they do the entire cycle of psalms in a two-week period. So let's say, for example, at the first hour of prayer, early in the morning, uh, we covered, say, Psalms 1 through 5. And these psalms would be sung antiphonally. That is, the right-hand side of the choir would sing the first verse. The left-hand side of the choir would respond by singing the second verse. And back and forth it would go in what's called plain chant. A, a very uh, plain medieval type uh, melody and, and rhythm. And it, it was quite the experience to stand there in the middle of the night with these men who have been steeped in scripture and particularly in the psalms and sing these psalms back and forth to one another, one through five. And then Next hour of prayer, hour number two, is right at sun, sunrise. When the sun rises, the bell rings again, and you're back for morning prayer. Morning prayer, or used to be called lauds, praise, but morning prayer. And you file back into the chapel, and you pray the next set of psalms. And there are other prayers as well, but the psalms are at the very core uh, of that liturgy. In the afternoon, at noontime, you had noonday prayer. Uh, again, back in the chapel, more psalms. And then at sunset, you had evening prayer. And then right before bed, you had night prayer or compline. So five times a day, people would assemble together and pray the psalms and other prayers as well, but the psalms were the very heart of that liturgy. So I experienced the psalms in a very different way during that time. And 
truly, I found a number of things. First, I didn't really know the Psalms at all. I knew the words of some of the Psalms, but it was amazing to see men who had been in this monastery, well, say from the early 1950s up until the early 1990s, that's 40 years they have spent. Five times a day, cycling through the 150 Psalms every two weeks as an act of profound prayer. These guys knew their Psalms. And I would stand and I would follow along in the text, but most of the monks would simply stand with their hands folded and their eyes closed, and they knew the Psalms by heart, every one of them. Every one of them. After all that time, after that intimacy with the Psalms, the Psalms became part of their very being. It wasn't a deliberate memorizing attempt. It was just part of who you are. And they were steeped in these Psalms. So that kind of intimacy was something that I found very attractive. Secondly, I found that the Psalms, although written by many different people over about a thousand years and collected together for various occasions in various collections, the Psalms are in the order they're in, 1 through 150, for a purpose. There's a reasoning behind the order of the Psalms. There's a natural rhythm within the Psalms themselves as they play off each other. One Psalm will be sung. The next Psalm will form a commentary on the first Psalm or a deeper analysis of some part of the psalm that came before. There's a natural internal rhythm to the collection of psalms. The collection of psalms, by the way, is referred to as the Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R. So there's a natural rhythm to the order of the psalms. And that rhythm, it seems to me, reflects one's own rhythm in a life in Christ. The high periods, the low periods, the flat periods, the questioning periods, the celebratory periods, all moving back and forth in a natural rhythm across time. So the book of Psalms, 1 through 150, the Psalter, has that natural internal rhythm. And I like approaching the Psalms in the order they're in, 1 through 150, to pick up that rhythm as we go, and at least to begin to feel it and understand it. So... The Psalms, that was my first real experience with the Psalms, that first year, first two weeks at Mepkin Abbey of year one of my time there. When I got back to UCLA after Christmas break of that year, I thought, you know, I need to learn more about these Psalms. And I set as a goal for that summer, when we had the academic break across the summer, I was going to study the Psalms. And at the end of the two weeks in that first year, uh, Father Christian, wonderful fellow he was, gave me the copy of the Psalter that was on my little table in the choir stall. And that copy is the one I have here with me. This was, this was from Mepkin Abbey. I didn't steal it. It was, <laughs> it was given to me by Father Christian. And uh, so... I took my copy of the Psalms that summer and I resolved that I would get up at 6.30 in the morning, I would get to school by 8, and I would sit down at my desk and I would study the Psalms all day long until 5. So from 8 o'clock until noon, I'd work on the Psalms. 
take a break for lunch, go to the faculty club, have lunch, come back at 1 o'clock and work through to 5, and then close things up and go home. And that was going to be my routine across the entire summer. And it was one of the most uh, uh, enjoyable summers I've ever had. Uh, it was a summer of, of discovery. It was a summer of um, really growing much more intimate with Christ through these psalms. And I would sit at my desk. I would have my copy of the Abbey Psalter in front of me. And I had little book stands, little uh, wire book stands. And I had commentaries on the psalms all in a semicircle across my desk around me with the Abbey Psalter in the front. So I had my Hebrew dictionary and Hebrew grammar. I had uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentaries on the Psalms. I had all this material, and I started with Psalm 1. And I read Psalm 1 from beginning to end. It's a short psalm, only six verses long. Read it. What is it saying on the surface? And then drop into the detail and begin working through the detail with all the commentaries. And as I did that, I took notes in pencil, because if I take notes in ink, it ends up being a mess without the scratch outs. But you, you note, as I hold it up, uh, that all of the uh, pencil notes all over. And I did that with all of the Psalms, every single page, and uh, worked through those Psalms in detail. By the end of the summer, I, I felt I had a much stronger grasp on those psalms. Then came Advent of year two. And I was invited again back to Mepkin Abbey. And I arrived. Brother Eddie picked me up at the airport. Uh, he always enjoyed doing that. The monastery is about an hour, hour, hour and a half drive from Charleston. I would fly into Charleston and Brother Eddie would be there in uh, his dungarees, you know, bib overalls. And uh, he had a white beard, very nice fellow. And he had the pickup truck from the monastery. And we would head out to the monastery. And we would stop on the way at a little restaurant off to the, about a half hour into the drive, off on the right-hand side. And we would go into that restaurant, and we would have dinner, because my flight got in around dinner time. We would have dinner, and we would both order liver and onions. And... <laughs> And it was funny because the monks in a Trappist monastery are, for the most part, vegetarians. Not rigid vegetarians, but for the most part, it's a vegetarian diet. And, uh, and Brother Eddie said to me uh, that second uh, year, as we were eating our liver and onions, he said, you know, I always love when you come in Advent because it's the only time of the year I get liver and onions. <laughs> and uh, and we, would, we would have our liver and onions and then get to the... Uh, get to the monastery. But I got there, year two, and the first morning, oh dark 30, the bell rings at the chapel, I wake up, make my way off to the chapel, and I brought my copy with me of the Abbey Psalter, and I stood in the, uh, in the choir, and I opened the book, and sat it on my little table, and I had a monk on either side of me, and Brother Eddie was to my right, and he looked over, and it was Psalm 1. We were just starting at the beginning of Advent, starting the new cycle. And he looked over and he saw all my notes. And I opened it and I stood there and I looked. I was getting all ready to pray. And I, I, I noticed Brother Eddie kind of craving his neck. And I looked over at him and he said, Okay. <laughs> they were proud. So uh, 
I, I, uh, that year, I had a much better handle on the Psalms themselves. I, I understood them at a much deeper level than I had before. Uh, and now, praying those Psalms, I certainly had memorized them, but with all my notes and structural bracket, bracketing, I could stand there with the monks as we prayed the Psalms together. And the level of meaning for each Psalm had increased dramatically because I understood the psalm. I understood how it worked. I understood the poetry of the psalm. Each year, that experience deepened. And honestly, when uh, Father Kristen retired and, uh, and the new abbot came on, and, and that, that's true in, in any occupation, you know, you, you get a new manager in, a new someone in, a new CEO in, and of course, they're going to bring their own people in to do their own programs, and that's as it should be. But... I genuinely missed my two-week Advent visit to Mepkin Abbey uh, after that. But it did lay a very nice foundation, a very solid foundation for engaging the Psalms. And as we move through the book of Psalms, as we move through the 150 Psalms, I'd like to bring that experience to the Psalms and illuminate them in a way that perhaps uh, we might not be able to do otherwise. So that will be the task. And it's a daunting task, again, because we do have indeed 150 world-class poems, like pearls on a string, as we work through these psalms. But if we do so, and if we do so in a way that is conscientious, if we do so in a way that is assisted by the Holy Spirit, if we do so in a way uh, that is engaging, then these psalms should come to mean something quite important for each and every one of us. I'd recommend, and I'm going to go through them, 1 through 150. I'll be putting the psalms up on the screen. First, just the psalm itself to read through and get a sense of what it says. And then we'll analyze each psalm, look at it in detail, and lift out what we can to really open the psalm up. So that'll be the method. And our second hour, we're about at the top of the hour now, our second hour, uh, I'll, we'll be working through three of those psalms, I think. Uh, I have three prepared. Whether we get through three, we'll see. But that will give me a sense of pacing that we'll need to do as we continue on. The psalms that I put up that are analyzed, uh, I, not, I've only done that for a few of the psalms in the past, I'm going to do an analysis for each of the 150 psalms and I'll be posting those up on our website so that you can look at them. What you'll be seeing up here, you can look at. They're all color-coded with arrows and notes and you can down read them online or you can download them and have them in that way. So I'll be doing that as we move through the psalms. That was a big promise I just made and now I guess I have to carry it out, don't I? So uh, that, that will be the approach that we take. But, but do, as we study each of these psalms in class, we have two hours together each class period or two one-hour sessions. Uh, as we move through the psalms, if indeed we get through psalms one through three, I, I would suggest that tomorrow and the following days up until next class meeting, that you simply focus on those three psalms that we read and analyzed and use those psalms for your own prayer. Uh, become intimate with them. Now that you have a better handle on them, 
begin to use them as a form of prayer because that's what they were written for as a form of prayer as celebration as discovery as spiritual development so use them and become more acquainted with them when we get to the next batch and work through them then use those psalms in the same way and pick up some of the previous ones that you particularly like and fold them in so the psalms become truly a journey through the poetry of experience not of the psalmist's experience but of your experience like any poetry any world-class poetry every time you come back to the poem you find something new the text hasn't changed you have changed and you bring additional experience to it in one form or another that adds depth and texture and tone to the poem itself so that will be the task and I'm looking forward to it, though it is indeed a daunting task, and it will be quite the journey. You've been listening to a Scripture Uncovered bonus episode from Dr. Creasy's latest release, The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience. Check it out now at logosbiblestudy.com slash psalms. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.